Vita Veritas. <laughs> Kia ora whanau and welcome to 76 Small Rooms, a podcast about architecture from Aotearoa, New Zealand. My name is Jeremy and I'm here with Arch. Hello. And Tash. Hi. And our guest today is photographer David Strait, the person who's produced a really wonderful book on the great New Zealand architect John Scott called John Scott Works, published by Massey University Press. David, welcome and congratulations on the book. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. What drew you to John Scott's work in the first place? And maybe you could start by giving a little bit of a preamble for our listeners who don't know necessarily who he might be. Oh, well, um, I guess John Scott is considered one of our um, most important architects, um, Māori architect, uh, was working from the 50s up until the, the early 90s, um, I guess you call him a regional modernist. He, um, he was one of those architects who kind of really um, looked at sort of New Zealand, I guess, because um, there's a few architects in that, in that era, but he was one of those people who really took the ideas of, especially from, from Te Ao Māori, from, um, from Whadanui and all these things, into incorporated them into his architecture. Um, the reason I got into it is, I mean, there's no book on John Scott. This is the sort of the first one. And I was doing another book and I'd keep hearing these stories as we're traveling around the country and seeing these buildings and you kind of hear these stories about John Scott, John Scott, you know, he's Fichuna, the great New Zealand building. And then you try and find out. I mean, I'm still very kind of new to, to architecture in some ways, and I was just trying to find out what who he was. And then you sort of, I mean, I think all the stories around him are really interesting, but they are just stories. And there's no sort of place to go and really kind of find them. Um, and so then a new one ever happened, um, the demolition of his building in Tuatawera, and that that solidified my intent to kind of produce this book. Quite a bit to address there in that um, preamble, thank you. Um, you mentioned, I guess, first um, the genesis of the book being in the demolition of the Aniwaniwa Visitor Centre in Uruweta National Park. Uh, that was built in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. I used to live down the road. Um, so it was one of the first pieces of architecture I experienced as a child and remembered really well. It was kind of an indelible experience the way it... Mm. It was a... A building that didn't have a single photograph to describe it, right? Mm, it wasn't mm, photogenic in that sense, but no, it no. had a really intriguing pathway through it that included ramps and a big round window with views mm. into the bush and was tucked in there. Mm. You were there for the demolition. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how that demolition came about and what motivated you to be there and to cover it and then to do this book as a result? Um, I mean, the demolition... Uh, I mean, it's such a kind of... Um, story, political issue. Um, this was a Category 1 historic building mm, talking about, too. Yeah, it? yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, the building... Uh, I mean, I mean, who really knows why it was... Um, it was basically shuttered, and I think it was 2005 it was, it was shuttered. They thought it was an uh, earthquake-prone building. There was issues around its um, water tightness and all these things. And it was basically left... It was neglected. Uh, essentially, it was neglected even before that. It was by the um, Department of Conservation, who was in charge of yeah, the Uruweta National Park. Um, I mean, the, it had Colin McCann's Uruweta mural in it. Um, you talk to someone like um, 
Malcolm Walker and he's would go in there and he'd see that mural rolled up on the back of a filing cabinet <laughs> and they didn't know how to use the entryway they'd come out through the, the toilets and you'd come into the building this way it was, a, it was an incredible building um, and I think so it was it was basically just left it was it was forgotten about and it was this you know became this sort of political fight over what to do with it um, a lot of it to do with the the iwi of the lake Tuhoi and Ngāti Uruapani who are the iwi of um, Waikere Moana and it became this sort of um, this very sort of political you know shit fight to kind of put it mildly um, and I had sort of started thinking about this book um, Nick Bevan and Greg O'Brien had put out their Futuna Life of a Building book which came out very very shortly before we found out that this was going to be demolished I mean this, it had been um, Laying, laying empty for a long time and then suddenly it was where this is going to be demolished and I think I found out on a Thursday that the demolition was going to happen on the Monday so I thought alright if I'm going to do this book on John Scott I have to see this building mm. um, and I didn't know anything about it I mean I think that's part of the problem as you said it didn't have wasn't photographed it didn't um, it didn't present itself in that way and there it was, was no money shot no no, no, no. Yeah. and it was so far away I mean you couldn't put a building you know more in the middle of nowhere for people to try and save um, so I kind of went up there on a Saturday and, and kind of went through it and um, sat there for the over the weekend um, the Saturday and Sunday before the demolition started on Monday morning so it was kind of um, yeah, as you were saying, it's it, you know it's a building that sort of you learnt about one of your first architectural experiences, and for me too. I mean, I've been photographing architecture for a little bit, but not really deeply, I think. And this was the building that I kind of got really, really strongly. Um, and you, as you say, you sort of walk through this Faranui type structure, and you walk into the bush, and you carried up these stairs and through these platforms and you you presented with the forest with Tūruwera right in front of you and it's sort of amazingly powerful um, communion with with a landscape with its context um, and you know I was there by myself it was just me and the birds and the trees and it was it became this really sort of powerful um, experience and that you know and then to know that that's going to be demolished in you know in a day's time was kind of um bit of kicker. <laughs> I love the, um, you write this account of that experience, like camping there and then, mm. you know, you, you wrote something about, I think you said, you know, you felt like you could understand what John Scott was thinking when he designed mm. it, which mm. I thought was just a really, it's a very evocative thing. Mm. Yeah. So I always wonder, is that a testament to the power of his idea or the or the brilliance of your perception? And you, <laughs> and you kind of like, but that, but it takes both of those things to come together and actually realise it, but it also speaks to the strength and clarity of an idea that, yeah. that reveals itself to you when you when you follow that sequence, when you see those mm. things revealed and you, you, you register the intent, mm, mm. I guess. And I think that was something that I... Um, I mean, it's very much... It's, it's John Scott's brilliance, I think, that he was quite simple in, you know, in a lot of ways that he could communicate that. You know, he could communicate those ideas very simply. The complex ideas, but they, he would do it very, very um, intelligently. And I think, um, you know, you you kind of. I mean, I think spending time in a building allows you to sort of let it unravel a little bit. Um, but I think you know, going through all these, all these well, John Scott's buildings, they sort of have a similar 
they kind of unravel in a similar way. Um, but yeah, Niwa Niwa, I, I think it partly was to do with time that I got to spend in it that was mm. kind of made that. It seems to me a, a sort of particular challenge in a way for a photographer mm. to try and convey something which is an experience beyond just the visual. And I think in your introduction, you even sort of kind of make reference um, to that with um, uh, mention of, is it Yuhani Palasman? Yeah. And his idea that, you know, architecture potentially could be, um, what, is it, what was the term that he used? Oculocentrism. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is the kind of the wonderful um, contradiction in photography and mm. architecture. It's like you, you're photographing a thing that, I mean, ultimately is an experience. Mm. Um, mm. And that's, you know, you're trying, and especially that building, it's, it, it has these, has this process, has this procession that you go through and, you know, to try and, yeah, to try and photograph it is a really kind of, it's a difficult thing. And ultimately you can't, really, mm. you know. And that's the sadness about it, that the building's no longer there for people to actually experience. But I think um, it's something that excites me as well. It's mm. a challenge in photography that I think, in, in photography and architecture, is that I, I that's the challenge that I, I kind of love. And it's trying to somehow create a feeling of being there rather than you know sort of just documenting it in a, in a kind of very literal way it's trying to allow the viewer to sort of feel like the well they can feel something in it i think yeah and mm. i think that you know that's 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 my experience of seeing these photographs they're extremely mm. tactile they're mm. very material mm. like they're very um some of them are quite Spartan mm. images that are focused only on... Uh, many of them are about the way light reveals the yeah. quality of, of a very simple material. Yeah. And that's yeah. all it is. Yeah. It's really strong. Yeah. But I mean, I think that's, you know, you kind of, as I was going through it, I was sort of learning about John Scott and what he was doing and, and how he would do it. And that's kind of what his buildings are. They are incredibly simple um, in terms of the materials he was using, his brick Mm. It's chipboard, it's like really, you know, very simple things, but he was a master at kind of figuring out how light would interact, especially in an interior space. Mm. Um, and so it really it's just kind of allowing that to sort of come through. It's not trying to, um, I don't know how you describe it, you're not, you're not trying to change, you, you're trying to be a truly intention of what he was, mm. he was how he was designing it. It's Emma Scott's window seat. It's this beautiful um, window seat, and you know, classic John Scott, and it's just, it's it's dark all around it, but this beautiful white um, thing, and it's, you know, that's that sort of seems really honest, I think, um, and I think that's how I approach the whole thing. It's just trying to be honest to his his craft, I think. You describe him as a modernist, and he was, but he wasn't a modernist of highly rational, open plan mm. spaces, but mm. a kind of what I think of as an intricate modernism. How would you describe it? Yeah, um, he's certainly not the, that kind of international modernism, everything's mm. very linear. Um, he's, I guess that's where the kind of regional thing comes in, and he, um, you know, talking about, uh, you know, referencing Fade and, and wool sheds and all these sorts of things. Um, but he was very, I mean, the, he, was, he was so interested in how people would use spaces and I think that he would kind of have the intention that modernist intention to sort of be true to materials blah 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 kind of very simple but then ultimately creating these quite human spaces that are um, that are quite complex in some ways um, you know 
the, the these sort of um, you'd go from a, you know, a very high ceiling down to a really low nook of a window seat and he'd, he'd have these sort of contradictions of, of light and dark so there is this quite intricate um, uh, play between between those sort of contrasting elements I think so he was yeah very much not about simple linear space um, big kind of big open spaces very rarely like apart from his churches even them they're quite intricate as well and quite um, quite small quite intimate and they all seem to come down mm. from large spaces to quite small yeah, yeah, spaces yeah. so the, the footprint and plan looks really big but yeah, yeah, yeah. the section you can imagine comes right down to a smaller than human scale yeah well Our Lady of Lords Church in Hadlock North is a perfect example of that it's this amazing like the roof comes down you'd have to duck to get yeah. through it like mm. it's this, and there's, there's a door there which you you know but you would have to sort of duck to sort yeah. of get through it and, it's a, and I think it's I think it's what you want as a, and what I kind of respond to is that um, those sort of moments that you want in a, in a building, you know, you want to, especially in a church, you want to feel kind of your spirit to soar yep. and then, but also to be kind of cocooned and looked after yeah. in some way. And that's what he was doing in his buildings as well, in his houses, that, you know, you'd have this, um, you know, if you wanted to retreat somewhere and sit by yourself and read a book or whatever, you know, you've got that little nook, if you've got this sort of open space where you've got your family around and, and it, it just seemed a really clever way of kind of, I guess, um, kind of reflecting the needs of people. And that's, yeah, I think that's, uh, I don't know how that kind of fits into the sort of whole modernist thing or not, you know, but. Um, I, I think it's really interesting because my one experience of John Scott's um, architecture is Fortuna Chapel like a lot of people. And I think, I think what you're saying is really true. It is a real architecture of contrast. I mean, he mm. has a very controlled um, use of light mm. and also of volume. Mm. And these things together do exactly that, lift the spirit, but also make you feel held mm. And, mm. And, and safe at the same time. And it's quite a um, powerful experience to feel both of those things. And I'm quite interested in your perspective on, um, you know, how how you find sort of experiencing and photographing his work in, in relation to perhaps a lot of um, architecture of today where there's perhaps a, a desire to let in a lot of light yeah. and all yeah. the view yeah. and, yeah. you know, here's everything. Eh? Um, perhaps the um, subtlety of um, contrast between light and shadow and some of those mm. other things isn't there so much? Do you think that's true? Yeah I, yeah, I think you're right. I think we do have this tendency to sort of open everything out mm. to to the view or to sunlight. And I think, um, you know, that's that's wonderful. It's kind of easier to photograph. The John Scott's places are they're hard to mm. photograph because they're quite small often. Mm. And then you've got this sort of, you know, this you know, extreme dark here and, you know, brightness over here. Um, but I think we've sort of lost that. In some ways, I think we've lost that sense of separation between, you know, we talk about insight, indoor outdoor flow and all that stuff, and um, and somehow you get neither. And I think it's, there's, um, especially, I mean, I'm obsessed with light and what the qualities of light and what it does, but if you just have this big wall of windows and that just sort of just becomes this wash, it doesn't, mm. have, a, it doesn't have a quality to it, which I think is, you know, I think that's one of the exciting things about about a building and the way that it can 
will I can kind of interact in a building and I think that's it's something that's sort of lost in some ways. Uh, I, I say this without having ever set foot in one of these buildings. I'm only <laughs> going off photographs, so I'm constructing these mental images of what mm. they might be like. But this idea of the contrast, I mean, if you flick through a you know contemporary architectural magazine, it'll all be wall-to-wall glass. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Whereas the impression I get here is of spaces where the building's like a camera obscura. Mm. And it's really clearly, really deliberately chosen apertures. Yeah, yeah. And I imagine a really dynamic environment. Yeah. Like the way the building mm. would wake up at dawn and the way that things would move through it. Yeah. And the colour and quality of light, either enhanced by the colour of the glass mm. or something by the movement of light. Mm. I, I get the feeling that spending a day in one of those buildings would give you an incredible variety of colour mm. and light. Mm. Quite but dynamic. I, yeah, but he was very, very conscious of... You know, there's stories of him being on site before anything's built and kind of figuring out where mm. where the light is and spending a whole day and seeing where the light travels around and seeing where the things to look at are. So you, you put a window to, to capture that. And, and I think it's quite nice that things are... You're not sort of just lost in this wash of light or landscape. You kind of... It's held back somewhat. And mm. I think it's quite a powerful thing where you're, you're not just sort of knocked over the head with something. You're sort of... Um, you have to think about it a little bit, and I, you know, and the, he would, you know, he'd he'd make sure that when you're on your window seat, you're looking out to a, to something, and the way that the sunlight would move through this, you know, square window over here would 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 interact with something else, and um, there's yeah, there's a sort of restraint to it, and I think you're either I think when his thinking, I think maybe you're you're either inside or you're outside. There's no kind of like. Mm. There's, there's, a, there's a definite edge between his buildings. There's very rarely, um, I mean, I think a lot of the, the, the big courtyards, but there's very rarely a deck or anywhere you wouldn't, mm. you know, if you're going to be outside, you go outside. And if you're inside, you're sort of, you're cocooned. I mean, I think of um, Namatea, the house in, mm. uh, up on the ranges, sort of east of Waodu. It's an amazing place. It's a high, high plateau, very, very cold. And you know, it's a huge landscape. It's enormous, but there's no kind of like huge windows anywhere. And the building acts as an embrace to the climate, and it's sort of it almost feels like it's a set of arms wrapping itself around you. And that's what it felt like being in it. It's this incredible um, kind of it's sort of holding you. <laughs> it kind of sounds really obscure, uh, really strange, but and I think it's and you're sort of there, and you're kind of um, you're experiencing the sort of the outside world in these very defined little moments. I wonder if too though, the, the really nice thing about apertures, you know, punched windows, is that you, um, if you stand up really close to one, the mm. view is expansive, mm. and then you retract back and it isn't. Like it almost forces you to interact with the edge of the building in a way to, yeah, yeah, to yeah. change and customise your view. You move and your view changes. When yeah. everything's glazed on all sides, yeah. you know, it's mm. really just a, a panorama mm. that doesn't change as you move. Mm. Are they like that? Um, yeah, and I think you know, as you move through, the view moves past the window yeah, as you move. Yeah, those sorts and of I think um, I, I kind of like when I was a new new, I kind of feel like you have to move in his buildings to really understand them. And it's something that Greg O'Brien wrote as well. It's like you know, it's, there's a lot of movement in his buildings. And I think it's for that, partly for that reason mm-hmm. that you are, um, you know, there's those places of of um, quiet and sort of being cocooned and you're in that place but then yeah you move you move through these buildings and that landscape changes and I think that is a real that's a he was intending on that I think that it was um, you're not just you're not just 
kind of passive, I think. Mm. Well, it offers up a variety of different experiences within mm. the house, you know, and, and perhaps ones that are attuned to different moods, which is not mm. really something that we talk about often in architecture, but actually mm. within, certainly within uh, within a home space, you know, you want spaces where you can come together, but also perhaps some t- places where you yeah. can, can yeah. you know, have separation or... It will you know, tuck yourself away. There's a great line, I don't know if this was in your your essay, David, or, or others, but it says that there's these there's distinct rooms that alternate between um, like lofty heights and, and low intimate nooks, mm. and they seem to reference mental states <coughs> and human needs. Mm. Yeah. Which I think is kind of almost exactly. like what you're yeah. saying. Mm. Right? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I, you know, I'm kind of experiencing these things. Um, I'm trying to be as honest as I can when I'm kind of photographing them. But it, and I sort of, I wonder, I kind of wondered how much of it's John Scott and Hamlet, like back to your kind of mm. question about how much of it's me. Um, but I'm quite an introverted person, you know, quite quiet, and I like those. And I think that's why I always gravitate to his window seats, because I feel like these little yeah. beautiful little cones. Like you're being mm. yeah, yeah. held or cradled or and something. And you've got, you've, you've, you've got, you know, a friend of mine says, you, you want to have your back against something. Mm. And it's sort of, and I think... You know, then you kind of move through. You know, you walk up a step, or you walk through something into a, another room, and you your mood changes, and your mm. kind of the way you think about things changes. And I, you know, and it's all this is this movement, and it, it, you know, I think, um, and I kind of wondered how much, yeah, I mean, how much I'm responding to that because I'm, I appreciate those spaces because of who I am, but I think you know, I mean, I think it's a more general thing. I think we all. We all appreciate those spaces. It's just maybe we don't experience them as much anymore. You, you said just then you're talking about trying to be really honest in the way you photograph it. What's a dishonest photograph? God, <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I think you know. I think there's a lot of. Oh, I'm going to lose my job at this interview. Um, <laughs> I've kind of that kind of architecture porn thing where you, you, everything's really glossy and um, yeah, you know, over kind of over realistic or over. So you mean perhaps um, post manipulation? Yeah, or, a little bit. Yeah, or selective angles. Yeah, mm. I mean, but where it's all selective, it's all subjective. Yeah, yeah. Presumably, no the honest it. photos are just as selective in the way they're framed as. But I think there's sort of this sort of glossiness we kind of apply to architecture that makes it. Um, uh, kind of the sort of hyper um, curated? No, not curated. Hyper lifestyle? Yeah, yeah, (laughs) basically. (laughs) That it's sort of, you know, this sort of this... Like dwell. Yeah, it's <laughs> not the worst offender, I don't think. Isn't it? Anyway, yeah. No, no, no. Because there's, there's, there were heaps of moments thumbing through here where you've got the building framed, and in a way, it's like, okay, I get why there's that shot because it perhaps represents the symmetry really well. But then to the side is like a caravan with a couple of gas bottles. Yeah. And yeah. I just really like that. I just because mm, yeah. that's what it actually looks like. Well, that's I what mean, my memories of looking at many things like that are. They're yeah. not with everything swept out of the way. Yeah, and I like that term, and I started out as a documentary photographer you know I kind of have that sort of documentary intent in a way that it's that I go there and record things um, you know it's sort of like it's like fashion you know all the models are retouched to death and mm. sort of I feel like a lot of architecture is retouched to death as well you don't get an honest interpretation of it and then we put that out into the world and say here's what architecture looks like when it 
doesn't often always look like that. And that's, you know, I'm involved in that world and that's, mm. um, that's great. But I kind of, sometimes I kind of want to see behind things and see the, the gritty reality of it all. Do you think, quite, oh, sorry, sorry, go no. Tash. Oh, I was going to say, I'm quite interested in this idea that, you know, having just been a part of a, very privileged part of a um, jury tour, that, that there are some buildings that photograph mm. really, really well but are not the most exciting buildings to mm. be in. And conversely, there are some buildings which are mm. so exciting and actually I would imagine very, very difficult to mm. photograph because mm. they don't come across mm. as well. Yeah. And and I'm quite fascinated in that disconnection. I'm, I'm quite mm. curious to hear about your experience of Well, that. this comes back to that idea of... Um, of Kind of international modernism and kind of photography kind of all everything could i think about it is sort of relating to a photographic plane or a photographic um frame you know everything when everything is very rectangular very rectangular you know things can can photograph really well mm. because there's it, it all kind of there's a sort of a symmetry there there's a symbiosis of the of the camera frame and the and the architecture um, and that comes off really, really well. You know, that's an, it's an easy thing to to photograph, but um, it often is those sort of weird, tricky little spaces that are really exciting to be in, mm. and to be around, and kind of move in, that are incredibly hard to sort of capture on camera. You have to, you know, sometimes the, the just the perspectives go all wonky mm. when you're taking a picture of it, and it's, I, yeah, it's a it's a really it's a really hard thing to do, and mm. I, I think that's why I always think of. I say in the book, like this, it's architecture is, is an experience, um, and it's in a way you know you try and, and photograph things and try and make you feel like you're there rather than trying to interpret it too literally. And I think um, you know maybe that's dishonest. I don't know. I don't yeah. know. It's kind of it's a it's a conundrum. Or is it a higher form of honesty? Who knows? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a shame our cellmate Matt isn't yeah. here because his masters was in. Schindler and mm -hmm. his idea about buildings being almost well I'll mangle this because I didn't do the masters and I actually <laughs> did was just about the, how, how photographable those buildings were and mm. it was relevant to that so I know he would love this conversation mm. but it's this the kind of you know photography in the age of Instagram and architecture in the yeah. age of Instagram and yeah. everything being designed to be photographed yeah um, and this is when the media starts to influence the, um, yeah. the the way the creative output. I mean, I was, I was listening on a music podcast that someone released an album that was all sub one minute tracks because that's the longest uh, you can upload to a video on Instagram. Yeah, yeah. And so you get that thing where, where it's influencing the creative <laughs> output. And I'm sure, I'm and sure, it, architects are responding mm, to that. Yeah, absolutely. But that's not, and in some ways, that's not a new thing. I mean, photography and architecture have been intertwined mm. since mm. photography was mm. born. Uh, especially modernism. I mean, modernism. Mm. There's a, the, the argument can be made that um, that kind of modernist period grew up with um, the magazine and and kind of modern photography. That can be everything can be reproduced. That's how modernism got around the world. Is that it became, you know, you could photograph it, put it in the magazine, and send it around the world. Julius Shulman, exactly. And, yeah, yeah. The Koenig houses, mm. all yeah, those, yeah. which is just a, such iconic mm. shots. Yeah. yeah. And so I think you know, photography is. That relationship between photography and architecture has always been there. Um, it just, yeah, it just depends on how far people are going to sort of, into, you know, blend them together. And um, it seems crazy, given the quality of John Scott's work, 
that this is the first book on and why mm. is that? Um, I don't know. Um, I think a lot of people have started this book. I mean, this. I mean, you know, there are. This is this is a, essentially a photographic book. This isn't the definitive biography, and I think a lot of people have started the that biographical book. Um, and there's a lot of information there. There's, there's a lot of there's sort of a lot to unpack, and, I'm, and I, it's a very very long project to do. And I think this book happened because it's predominantly photographic, and it is um, it is just looking at his building. It's not looking at in too much detail into who the man was. Um, and I, it's a shame in a way. I mean, I would have, I've got to the end of this book and gone. I, I'd love to do it again, <laughs> to be honest. Um, you know, and to 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 look more into that. But I think it's, you know, he was a complicated guy in a lot of ways. And I think there's a sort of complicated history there, um, that a lot of people have started and just kind of gone. Oh, it's just too hard. It was going to take ten years to do. And what was complicated? Um, I think there's. Um, I don't know, I don't really know for certain, but I think um, the family have been quite, um, not controlling, but very aware of of his, his legacy and his mana and, and kind of keep keeping that together and not letting someone go and um, just sort of, you know, write something that, that they don't agree with. That's, I'm, I'm, you know, that's my, um, possibly my reading into things, but... Um, one of the things I like about your book, though, is it kind of slips in the side door, so it completely steps, sets aside all that pressure to create mm. a quote-unquote magisterial biography, mm. but probably tells mm. through your photographs and the four essays that are part of the book, mm. um, reveals as much of the man and the quality of his mm. work as one of those books that attempts to be definitive mm. might do as well. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of hoping that people read it and read into the images, you know, their own kind of narrative, their own, you know, the, the images are open enough to, to be, to allow you to sort of create your own understanding of it. But, I mean, the, the essays are, are wonderful. They do add that um, that kind of, that background, especially Hana's essay, which is this brilliant essay around his, his the whakapapa, his, you know, his family. And, this is his granddaughter. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, you know, and I, and you... I mean, I certainly think you get to the end of this book and you feel like you know a lot more than what you started with, you know. Um, and it's, you know, I mean, it's um, there's, there's there's a lot there's a lot that's not in there. I mean, when I started this, the kind of the thing that was sort of was piquing my interest was these stories. It's almost this oral history of of the architects who knew them and mm. clients and things. And it's all these stories, all you know, that are kind of aren't in here but um and sort of collating all that and i say you know i'm, I'm not an historian i'm not an architect i'm just trying to do it through through pictures um yeah so there's a lot lot left on the cutting floor i guess yeah i mean just you know some of the stories in there about his drawing i mean there's that tale where he drove somewhere and he, and he drew a revision to the design in the yeah. dust of the rear window and everyone looked at it and then you drove, drove off, off. <laughs> and it's like 
only record of, yeah. of that decision. <laughs> and the other one where he apparently scribbled on the ground and the yeah, builders yeah. lay corrugated iron over it to sort of yeah. preserve it because it was the only capture of what yeah. he was thinking about yeah. changing the design. Those stories leave me really hungry for yeah. hundreds more that must be there. Yeah, and there is. I mean, you, you talk to the... Um, you talk to the owners of the houses and they've got all these stories yeah. and turning up at, you know, at 10.30 at night and, you know, it's, they are incredible and it's sort of, you know, you, you, my big regret is that I haven't kind of collected that in some ways. Um, and he was, you know, he's coming back to sort of contradictions, he had this sort of um, persona of being this really kind of laid back, kind of bohemian kind of guy wearing bare feet and a mm -hmm. you know, car with no windscreen and um, but being this, then being this really incredibly fastidious architect, you know, and creator, and so there's, yeah, there's always sort of weird contradictions in, in, in his work and these stories that just, you know, the stories of um, at Namatea when they were, when they were building it, um, they had to stop because the builders got frostbite and you know all the the block work got mould on it. Someone had to come and grind off for the you know when they started work again, you know. Um, yeah, there's a lot there. There's a lot of a lot of stories. What are your favourite John Scott buildings? <laughs> um, Namatea is definitely one of them. Um, it's very striking. Mm. It, it's yeah. yeah, it's um, I mean, I photographed that in the middle of winter in a southerly, freezing, freezing cold, and as I was saying, you know, it kind of it has this feeling of being you're being embraced in it, and it's a sort of this wonderful experience that I've never really had before. That it, it's quite a large building. It's probably one of his, definitely his largest house, maybe apart from his last one. Um, but it doesn't have that sense of being a really overly. Um, I also large thought space. it's one of the most striking photos of a building in a landscape. Yeah, this one mm. here mm. is just that's remarkable. That that line up there. Mm. Page 284 and 285. <laughs> <laughs> well, he conceived it as being, because it's in the sort of volcanic plateau, as being a, as a point, as a sort of volcanic point. And yeah. the, the sides of it sort of wrapping around like kind of like lava spewing out from the centre and these sort of things that come down the side. Right would be spinning at building on the top of the hill. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but it works. But this is, I mean, you know, the southerly, so that's kind of south there and it faces the south and then it sort of wraps its arms around you. Kind so of it almost it has its back mm. to yeah, yeah, yeah. the like southerly. Yeah, you mentioned like someone yep. literally wrapping their arms yep. around you and that's what it feels like to be in. It's warm, um, it's, it's, very, it's a very intimate space. And it, it, it was kind of this. I mean, I photographed it and I stayed the night. I really there. like this Tash. I do. I do love that window seat. Yeah. It's just beautiful. Tash's point to a window seat at Namatea on page 283. Uh -huh. <laughs> and, it, you know, it, it was kind of one of those experiences of, of being in a building sort of similar to a Neonia, but on the complete opposite end of the kind of emotional um, range that it was just an incredibly exciting place to be. And it was. Um, uh, you kind of again got the intention of what he was doing, you know, what he was, what he was aiming to do with this incredibly exposed landscape, to have a building that was um, kind of that, that embrace from the from the climate. And you must know his his sort of portfolio now as as well as anyone, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, you're probably there'd be few who've actually been to all of these works. Yeah, uh, yeah, very few. Um, I mean, I think Jacob. I mean, there's a lot out there. There's still, you know, there's over incredibly prolific. Yeah, yeah. so many. Over two hundred. Um, wow. 
And yes. how many are in the book? There are 23 or 24 featured, and then I photographed, I photographed 46 all up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and a lot of them have been um, renovated. A lot of them have been renovated very badly. Mm-hmm. Um, there's plenty that have been lost. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and then there's, there's ones that we'll probably never, no one will ever see, you know. Um, there's been interesting that there's quite a few people have come up after the books come out and said, oh, I've got a John Scott house. You can come visit. <laughs> wow. And it's sort of some that I've I tried to find that I couldn't find. Um, so, yeah, I, I feel like I've... And I, the book's laid out chronologically as so it starts at, um, one of, you know, one of his one of his earliest buildings and goes to sort of towards the end and it's I've tried to sort of photograph that in a way where you can see the sort of progression and, and the way that his his thinking um, so yeah I've this isn't it amazing how quickly the recent past can be lost mm. in a way you're doing a kind of archaeology but only going back 25 years and struggling to find everything yeah yeah yeah. which I find remarkable mm, yeah. and you know why was he not why did he not have a bigger profile? Why was he well, not bigger? Well, yeah, I find that really um, kind of intriguing because you know, for it to be 2019 and to the first book on one of our major architects to come out, it, it does seem it does seem really strange. Um, I mean, uh, yeah, for whatever reason that hasn't happened. I mean, you think of everyone else, like the Athfields, and mm. you know, um, there are books on those guys, and and I think it's a shame. I think. That, I think the sort of scholarship around John Scott rests in about sort of five buildings, and I think there's a lot to mine there. There's there's more to learn from him, and you know there's probably a lot to learn in the buildings that have been lost and we'll never see again. Um, and I think that's sort of a shame in a way that we that that wasn't captured and sort of thought about at the time. Um, I think coming back to what you said before about glossiness. You know, there's a mastery of really basic craft mm. around space and sequence and light, mm. contrasting with today, where, where much of the <clears throat> much of the contemporary glossy imagery you're talking about is about like opulence of materials. Mm. It's mm. really lavish materials, golds and stones mm-hmm. that um, you know, of course, have wonderful qualities. Yeah, but um, can still be really poorly represented with just loads of diffuse light, no character, no play. Mm. This is. Some of these have even got those old, those old plus with the timber curved kind of batten that separates, and they're not even stopped. Mm. Yeah. Like the sort of school hall type buildings we would have all been in when we were really little. Yeah. But you can see by the way the lights controlled and the mm. space is controlled, it's you can tell it's really magical. It's mm. really kind of masterful. Mm. This was on the bestseller list at Unity Books quite a few weeks after it came out. So. <laughs> Apart from rolling in royalties, as you can <laughs> did it surprise you that an architecture book about an architect that a lot of people claim not to know about was so popular immediately? Um, yes and no. I mean, I think people have been kind of wanting this book to come out for a long time mm-hmm. in some ways. I mean, you know, John Scott's very well known in the architecture world, even if they don't really know so much about him, they'll know, they would have heard of Futuna. Um, but I think it, it's sort of it's accessible enough that people who don't uh, who won't have heard of them can pick them up and, and pick this book up and, and learn about it and it's I think it's um, when we talk about I mean I sort of always pitched this as not just a book about architecture about of an architect but it's a book about an incredibly important New Zealander mm. and I kind of think that that's true he was someone that is was sort of 
around at the time of um, that kind of that scene, I guess, of, of the artists and, and those people who were really changing and were challenging what New Zealand was, and, and he was just doing it instead of an art form, he was doing it in, um, through architecture. And it's incredibly, he was incredibly important in that way that we see ourselves. Um, so I think there's probably something in that that people are um, possibly thinking about as well. But yeah, I mean, I'm 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 stoked. <laughs> oh, you should be. It's a it's a beautiful book. Yeah. It's really fantastic, and um, you know, I I learned a lot, and I, 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 I to my great shame, I knew so little about it beforehand, and, and it's a fantastic piece of work. So congratulations. Thank you very much. Thank you for the book, David, and thank you for coming to speak to us here today. You've been listening to 76 Small Rooms, a podcast about architecture from Aotearoa, New Zealand, everybody. Thanks for joining us, and thanks especially to our guest, David Strait. And congratulations on the book again. Thanks, Thanks very much. Cheers. 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 Cheers.